Welcome to episode number 94 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and with me today are regular panelists Katie Grubbs and guest panelist Emily Rogers. Hi, Katie and Emily. Hey. Hey. Before we get started, let's introduce ourselves for anybody new to the program. Uh, Emily, since you're our guest, we'll start with you. Tell us anything you'd like us to know about yourself. Um, I am a recent grad from Crown College. Um, I'm a former student of Victoria's, which is um, makes this an honor to be on a podcast with her um, and her colleagues. But um, I studied English. My major was English. Um, a little bit of philosophy peppered in there and um, a lot of uh, social studies that I kind of created myself. So I'm very excited to talk about today's topic. One of my passions is theater and plays. And so i um, extra excited about this play today. Thanks so much, Emily. Really happy to have you. Katie, how about you? I'm Katie Grubbs and I'm adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas, uh, where I live with my husband, David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our four children, one of whom I can currently hear right now outside the door. The baby girl sounds like she's getting um, fractious because she's tired. So I'm just going to let David handle that and have a nice conversation. That sounds like a fantastic decision for our forthcoming uh, discussion on the split of gendered labor. So I know, uh, right? <laughs> that's, that's pretty perfect. Uh, hi, everybody. As I said, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, I have a doctorate in drama and gender and sexuality studies from Florida State University. Uh, we're going to be talking about both of those things today, so I'm pretty excited. We're uh, pretty smack dab in the middle of my wheelhouse, and uh, I am also married to a panelist from the Christian Humanist podcast, Michael Farmer. We live with our two cats in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Um, they are both in the room with me, so we might have some special feline guests. Um, what else? I'm currently working in audience development at Public Radio International um, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We, as I think I said last time um, I was on the show, we are in the middle of merging with another company. So uh, lots of fun uh, topsy-turvy stuff there. Don't really know exactly what my job is right now. Uh, so fun times. That is enough for introductions, I think. Uh, tonight's episode is about Susan Glassville's 1916 one-act play, Trifles. Uh, so I'm going to start by telling everyone a little bit about Glassville and the play. Uh, and then we'll talk about the plot of the text itself. So Susan Glassbull was born in Iowa in 1882. Uh, she wrote a lot about the Midwest. She studies at Drake University in Des Moines and then at the University of Chicago. Uh, and importantly for us tonight, after that, she worked as a journalist for a little bit. And one of the cases she reported on was uh, a murder of a farmer, John Hossack, who is killed while sleeping in his bed. And there's a lot of reporting on this because it's really hard to figure out um, how someone gets murdered in their beds, who did it, why they did it, that kind of thing. Um, later, Glassville founds the Provincetown Players Theater Company and Artist Collective in 1915 with her husband, George Cram Cook, who is an experimental dramatist himself and a philosopher. 
You've probably heard of other people who are affiliated with the Provincetown players, Theodore Dreiser, Juno Barnes, Eugene O'Neill, Wallace Stevens, and Edna St. Vincent Millay are among their company. Glassville writes trifles in 1916 and then rewrites it in a different genre as a short story. Uh, it's called The Jury of Her Peers, and that comes out the next year. The play is considered foundational in the tr dramatic tradition of American realism because her stage directions and the structure of the play are incredibly descriptive and realistic. Uh, she describes houses that look like houses and people who move like people. Um, it's also quite a bleak portrayal of what it's like to live on a farm in the Midwest. Uh, also importantly for our discussion, um, Glassball is an early feminist writer and this play works really hard to examine um, social gender hierarchies and how they make people act. So before we start talking about the text itself, um, I'm just going to give a really quick summary of what happens in the play. That won't take very long. Uh, the entire action of the play is pretty much as follows. John Wright is found dead in his house. His wife, Minnie, is the chief suspect. The men of the town, the lawyer, the sheriff, and the next-door neighbor question the women and don't find enough evidence to convict Minnie. That's pretty much the entire play plot-wise, but the information that's not there, the evidence that the men don't find and Moreover, the reasons they don't find it is really what makes a play work, what makes it a compelling piece of drama and an important feminist text for us. Uh, so Katie and I have both taught this text a couple of times um, and think it's a really good text to teach. Um, we're going to talk about that a bit before we move on to analyzing the play itself. Uh, Katie, why do you like teaching this play? So I've kind of taught it two different ways. So let me break that down for just a second, because I, I like it for different reasons, depending on the context. So way back when I was a graduate student at UGA, I taught a um, I taught a composition two class that was themed and it was a detective fiction themed comp two class. And so in that class, we read trifles as an example of detective fiction in dramatic form. So in that class, a lot of the things I had my students think about when they were reading the play, we focused more on the women in the text as detectives um, because the men are supposedly there gathering evidence, but they miss all of the important clues. Whereas the women notice lots of things in this house that are kind of creating for them a narrative of what may have happened. And um, so that's kind of how, that's kind of how we focus more in that class. So my students in that class, they, they, they did react to some of these gendered, uh, and we did talk about some of the gender stuff in the play, but we were more focused on kind of genre concerns regarding kind of a detective story because as a detective story, it breaks the rules. It doesn't necessarily um, fit what you would normally expect. The person who's been accused of the crime never even appears. We never even see her. We don't hear her say anything. Everything that we know about her, we learn from her home and from um, accounts of other people talking with her. Um, so that's one thing that's unusual. Um, these women are not the usual person you would expect to be doing the detective work, which that is also, that's another gendered thing. Um, you know, there's no, there's no male detective coming in. These men, again, are trying to find out what happened, but the person, the people actually doing the detecting are these women who keep being brushed off by the men as unimportant. Um, the other kind of way I've been teaching it and is I'm been developing a brand new online comp, to for HBU this semester, literally this week, I've been finishing um, the work on that. And I chose trifles for that class as the one example of drama that we're going to be studying um, for a lot of reasons. One reason is because I think it's enormously successful in the way that she creates um, complexity in these women characters, even though it's a very short play um the super layered interesting portrait you get of minnie foster right the woman who has possibly done this crime um even though you never see her on uh on on stage we would say um so and also just um the ways that she again like victoria mentioned the way that the way that 
she's working with stage direction and description to give really clear images of what all this stuff looks like. Um, I think it's it makes it a play that's interesting for students and also can help them a little bit to understand drama better because a little more is given to them than if I handed them something like Shakespeare or if I handed them a text where they have a list of characters but the stage directions are minimal and you know it's difficult to visualize because there's none of this description of what the rooms look like like Victoria talked about. So I think, and, and also there's the idea which I really want them to think about, about gendered knowledge, which we're going to talk about, and how that changes things. And actually, when I made discussion questions for that class, one of the discussion questions that they're going to look at for for this one is, um, I don't remember exactly how I phrased it, but it's something to the effect of, what is Glassbell trying to say in this? What do you think Glassbell's trying to say in this play about women's knowledge, in scare quotes, and the ways that it um, can matter um, or the ways that these women are functioning completely differently in this situation because they have different knowledge than the men. So it's, um, it's a play that I've taught in the past and I'm about to teach in a way that's totally different. And um, I'll have to report back and let you guys know how it goes because, again, this is a class I'm building. So I will start teaching it in January. Um, so we'll see in the spring what my new crop of students what they think about the play. I think it might come across differently too in my online class because so many of my online students are um, non-traditional. So a lot of them are in the working world or are um, in the home doing some of these same types of women's tasks. And in that way, some of my students might be much closer to a situation like this than when I taught it at UGA and every almost every single student in my class was a traditional aged undergrad you know, living in the dorm, not as much in a domestic space. Uh, I mean, I have at least two in my current class who are grandmas. So um, I think it might, it might come across very differently. So that's actually a really perfect segue for me to talk about my experiences teaching the play. Um, I've taught it probably 10 or 12 times in various um, classes, sometimes in composition classes, the kind of intro lit class that you were talking about, Katie, um, and also sometimes in um, a, a drama overview class. Um, and the experiences I'm going to talk about right now are one from each of those kinds of classes. Um, just two students that experienced the text in a way that really made me think differently about it. So the first one was in an online class, um, an online, um, I think it was called Introduction to Literature with a Christian Perspective or something like that. And um, I used this play, as you were saying, as the drama unit of the course. And it was an online class with mostly non-traditional students. And it was the first time I had taught um, I had taught that class before, but not an online version of it. And, and so I was worried about um, how to teach material that I was familiar with to an audience that I wasn't necessarily as familiar with. And um, like you were saying, the fact that a lot of these people were performing the kind of labor that the play is about um, really struck a chord with them. There was one discussion post, I'll never forget it, uh, from someone who uh, was going back to school while being a stay-at-home dad and uh, the baby was still an infant and they had made a decision for their family that it was best if the mother go back to work and he stay home and take care of the baby just in terms of um, monetary options available to them and, and career paths and that kind of thing. And the discussion post he wrote about this play was so beautiful because he talked about really understanding um, the isolation that came with domestic labor in a different way and that he saw himself in the women in the play in a way that made him think about how he had, um, he used the phrase, not seen his wife in the past because now he felt overlooked and that he was going to think about labor and their marriage in a different way because of seeing himself in the play and so that was huge for me just to like think wow this material even though it's the same even though I've taught it a dozen times um, I've never really thought about it from that perspective so um, that was really great and I think really helped um, really helped the whole class 
feel the material in a different way. Um, another way that, um, that that happened in a different class was when I was teaching it in the dramatic literature overview. Um, I used this play wisely, I think, um, since I was teaching to uh, a group of students, a lot of whom have really strong agricultural ties in Minnesota. I used it as an example of American regionalism. So this is about a particular region of the country and is trying to illuminate what life is like in that place. And um, I got some fairly decent class discussion out of it, um, but nothing earth-shaking in class. So I go back to my office and I'm sitting there, office hours, prepping for the next class, whatever. And I get a knock on my door and it's a young woman from my first class and she's standing there sobbing. And, you know, um, at small schools like that, mentorship sort of takes many forms and you often get uh, people crying about things unrelated to schoolwork. So my first, uh, my first impulse was just to say like, oh no, what happened? Like, are you okay? Do you need to sit down? Please tell me what's going on. Um, and she just wanted to talk about the play. The first thing she said was, I want to thank you for assigning that to us, which is not, that's not something a lot of students say about a lot of texts. Uh, so that, um, that really struck me that that was like her opener while she was crying. Um, but also once I, you know, got her to sit down and calm down and say, you know, can you, can you tell me more about why you're saying that? She said, I feel like this play could have been about my grandmother, and I feel like um, it spoke in a way that she wouldn't have, and it told her story in a way that I understand now as an adult, but couldn't understand before. And so, you know, for me, wow. as, right, isn't that, that's incredible? Um, yeah, so incredible. As, as someone who is not from this region of the country, and even though I've lived here for a while, it, it still sort of feels foreign to me, um, even though I was teaching it as like an artifact of the region, um, because it's a region that I don't fully understand the way that she did or the way that her family does. Um, I, I thought that was really incredible and, and really appreciated uh, her, her sharing that. Okay, so now um, let's get a little deeper into the text itself. Um, something that really jumps out, I think, to the person reading this play for the first time um, is the characters' names, or um, might be better to say lack of names. Um, Emily, talk to us about character naming um, in the play and how that colors identity. Yeah, so um, I very first read this play, I think it was my sophomore, junior year of college, and um, it was a time when I was kind of discovering um, what it meant to be in a long-term relationship, and so I was, I was very struck by the fact that all of these women are very much defined by their husbands in that they're called Mrs. Wright, Mrs. Peters, Mrs. Hale. Um, uh, Minnie is actually the only woman that's given, that her first name is given. Um, and my initial reaction was to be shocked and appalled and to say, oh my gosh, how dare they, um, <clears throat> how dare these characters be defined by their male counterparts? Um, I used to be much more fiery than I am now, but um, I was shocked and appalled. And then um, after thinking about it a little more, I kind of saw what she was trying to do and um, began to understand after um, watching the play a couple of times and rereading, um, seeing that she was doing this um, very obvious juxtaposition um, between Men, quote unquote men's work and women's work and and the trifles that women worry about and how um, a lot of the things that typically women view as important um, or are told to view as important are seen as very um, unimportant or trivial to men um, <clears throat> and that is just really shown in the names, in the fact that these women are not given identities, they're not given 
um, very many characteristics. She does describe them, um, like you said, in, in the stage directions, and I love the stage directions in this play um, because it gives facial expression, it gives physical descriptions um, more so than you would in a lot of plays. And um, I really liked that in reading this play, you can pick up a lot on who these women are um, despite them not being given first names, but I um, I am a firm believer that drama is meant to be seen and consumed um, live. And and so I imagined seeing this live and, and realizing how much more of an effect that, um, that namelessness would have that I kind of thinking was like, well, that's kind of obvious, but I think seeing it live, it would really have a very strong effect um, because it adds a little bit of confusion um, to who these women are. So not only are they not given names, but they are connected to men, but that is not necessarily um, obvious or understandable right away. Um, they're, they're obviously defined by their men, but even that connection is kind of um, obscured, um, which draws a bit of a firmer line between what men traditionally value and what women traditionally value. Um, yeah, I think um, the most important role of name in the play would be Minnie, the woman who is in accused of murdering her husband. Um, she is finally, we find out her maiden name, Minnie Foster, um, which is a very endearing name you think of foster care and foster child and the idea of someone opening their home um to to love someone that doesn't necessarily belong to them but that needs to be loved and um you kind of get the idea through these women's conversation that Minnie was a person that would have done that that she was very open-hearted and light-hearted and um very colorful and joyful as a child and yet um, she is now named Minnie Wright or Mrs. Wright, and she has been forced to kind of fall in line with her husband. Um, his word is very clearly law in their home, um, and it's implied several times that he has really killed the spirit of kind of Minnie Foster, of the, the girl or the child that she, the woman, um, that she used to be. Um, and she has now kind of fully fallen into her role as purely and simply Mrs. Wright, um, that Minnie Foster is kind of no longer there. And, and Mrs. Wright is who has been charged with um, Mr. Wright's home and pleasure and um, satisfaction and comfort. So, yeah. That's a, a really fantastic point. Uh, the fact that we don't we only get her first name in the context of who she was as an unmarried person um mrs hale and mrs peters are talking about minnie foster when minnie foster used to sing in the choir so she's um kind of both name wise and figuratively a, a different uh person before she marries him um, also something that my uh students uh, notably, I think it was usually the female ones who got here first, um, that she, she literally marries Mr. Wright, um, but, but he is, he is not, uh, not, not at all, um, you know, in, in the without the W sense. Um, so I, I think you're, you're supposed to sort of hear both of those, both of those things. It's interesting to me too, that the women call each other, they, they don't even call each other by first names. So like she, you know, they miss, she says, Mrs. Hale. And, and she says, yes, Mrs. Peters, <laughs> which is strange. I mean, and, and that part of that could be the period, a time of greater formality. They could be taking refuge in formality in a very uncomfortable situation. But I, that always puts me off for a second. I always think, but I think, I think you're right, Emily. It's more, you know, of that we've, we've disappeared into our new, you know, into our married familial roles. Um, you know, if they only refer to Minnie Foster, by her first name in connection with her maiden identity before she got married. Well, both of these women are married. So maybe, I, so they're only going to refer to each other as Mrs. Hale and Mrs. Peters. I just thought it was interesting that they didn't even use first names with each other. Well, they, they talk about a kind of communal distance, right? In the play, 
um, when they're talking about how Minnie Foster used to sing in the choir, um, I feel bad because I can't remember if it was Mrs. Hale or Mrs. Peters, but one of them says, um, uh, it's Mrs. Hale says, um, I wish I'd come over sometime when she was here. I wish I had. And then Mrs. Peters says, but of course you were awfully busy, Mrs. Hale, your house and your children. I could have come. I stayed away because I weren't cheerful because it weren't cheerful. And that's why I ought to have come. I've never liked this place. Maybe because it's down a hollow and you don't see the road. I don't know what it is, but it's a lonesome place and always was. I wish I'd come over to see Minnie Foster sometimes. So that passage is super interesting because it, it talks about um, the right household creating a distance from the rest of the community. Um, and they keep, even though they're talking about her as a married person in that sad circumstance, they keep calling her Minnie Foster. It's like they're like trying to remember who she was because they didn't remember who she was. Yeah, for sure. And, um, I think it's interesting too. Um, and that, and, and I, um, and I, and I don't know actually that I know the answer to this question. I have to go back and look at the play line by line, but in the textbook that I use with my students that has the play printed in it, they ask the first discussion question that they list after the play is actually kind of pertinent, pertinent to this whole idea because the question that is not something that ever occurred to me. Um, but the question is, at what point would an audience watching the play being performed, not reading it, at what point would the audience realize that Mrs. Peters is the sheriff's wife? Because that's listed in the the character list. So the re readers know it from the beginning, but, um, you know, and then at the very end of the play, there's that kind of, you know, I think the county attorney or some, you know, makes a joke about she's married to the law. But up to that point, you know, where does it become clear? It's more of that ambiguity that Emily was talking about, right? The, the, the idea that it's even though it's clear to readers, it might not be clear to viewers that one of these women is married to the sheriff. Though, if you pay attention, she's the one who defends the men a little bit more. Miss Hale has a little more fire. She's a little bit more angry. Um, and, you know, it's also Mrs. Peters who says, you know, a crime has to be punished. Right. Um, but it's just interesting that it, it's not clear from the first line that she is the sheriff's wife for a viewer. Well, that's partly why Mrs. Hale is called Hale, right? She's she's hale and hearty. She's tough. She has a big voice. Oh, yeah. Um, that sort of Midwestern farm wife whole thing. That makes sense. Yeah. OK, so I think we probably said enough about this bit. Um, Katie take us into the heart of the text, talk about separately gendered knowledge and how um, it's really the, the engine that makes the play work. So um, from the beginning of this play, there's the idea that they get to the house and the men are going to split off and look for evidence. And so, you know, the men kind of come in and the, the man who discovered the crime, who is uh, Mr. Hale, um, kind of gives his account of coming to the house and because he's going to come. And by the way, this is also speaks to the isolation. Victoria quoted that part about the isolation of the farmstead. So it's physically isolated. It doesn't even look out on the road. But also the reason Mr. Hale was there that day is he comes to try to convince Mr. Wright to go in with him on a party telephone line. Um, and so they don't have one. Right. There's no phone at this house either. Um, you know, a party telephone line would have connected them a little bit more. Um, to the rest of the community. Uh, and just as a quick side note too, something that um, whenever David teaches this, my husband teaches this play, the paper he has the students write with it is a context paper. So he has them choose something in the play and research and find out more and then talk about how that deepens the meaning of the play for them. But he said he always gets interesting essays about party lines um, and what they are and how, you know, what significance that has for the play and, um, and not just party lines, other things too. But so they kind of get this account and then the men leave, they go upstairs to see the body. They're going to go out and check the barn. And they, um, they say, uh, Ken attorney says to the sheriff, you're convinced that there was, there was nothing important here. Um, nothing that would point to any motive. And the sheriff says nothing here, but kitchen things. And, um, they also talk about the women worrying over trifles, hence the title of the play. 
And some of the things that they are brushing off that the women notice immediately are things like her jars of fruit um, have almost all but one of the jars of fruit have frozen because they, they let the fire go out when they found the body the day before they let the fire go out. And they tell us that Minnie was worried about the fruit and she wanted them to check on it. Um, so the fruit preserves um, all the jars are broken except one. Um, they noticed the women noticed that she had bread to set, but she also had a loaf of bread sitting outside the bread box. The table is half cleaned. That's very clear. Um, in the text, um, the pans under the sink haven't been washed. Um, the towel, the roller towel is the thing that always sticks with me. Yeah. The men are complaining about the roller towel being dirty. And that's one of the first times where you sense that um, division and that, that frustration on the part of the women is that I think it's the County attorney. Um, He's the most frustrating character because the other two men who appear are married to the two women. So they're kind of older men, you know, they, they're, they, you know, they live with, with families, but the County attorney is a young man and he's kind of painted as like a guy who doesn't know anything about domestic things, but he's the one talking the most smack about this roller towel being dirty. And she wasn't much of a homemaker, was she? And, and it's, he, it's just very rage making. Yes, it is. I the towel, like, I just can't get that image out of my head because he basically calls her lazy because she has a roller towel instead of like individual towels that you have to replace. And this is the first moment where Mrs. Hale sort of shows her attitude because he's complaining about it. And she says, those towels get dirty awful quick. Men's hands aren't always as clean as they might be. And, like, mm-hmm. she's talking about physical hands, but also she's not. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and he says, loyal to your sex, I see. Like, of course you're going to defend her. She should have... Well, and he and he says, you know, well, some Dixon County Farms houses don't have roller towels like this. Like, he's just... Yeah, he's just being very snide. Um and uh, there's one other thing. Oh, well, they so the table, the, the table's half cleaned, which to me and, and they keep the women keep finding things. And um, there's a lot of arrested motion in this play so that, uh, you know, one of the women will be moving across the room or putting something down on the table. And, and then and then Glasper will say something like she becomes still or she stops because she's noticed something in the room. And while the men are still there, they don't say anything. You know, they just see things, but they don't say anything. Um, I'm looking at when, um, let's see, Mrs. Hale's looking on the bread box. She's moving slowly towards it. Um, she was, then she says she was going to put this in there. And then stage direction picks up loaf, then abruptly drops it in a manner of returning to familiar things. It's like they keep being arrested in their motion and because they keep noticing more clues to Minnie's state of mind. Um, and in that way, there's definitely a feeling in this play that like, um, and I don't know where this expression, if this is an expression or if it's a, if it's a permutation of a different traditional expression, but Minnie's house really is her second face, right? So we never see her, but her kitchen tells us the story of her life, right? It tells us exactly what was happening and the, but only the women get it. They're the only ones who can see it because they, they're looking through the lens of their specialized knowledge. They know the significance of a table half cleaned. You know, she's got, um, you know, exactly what's happening with the bread. They find quilt pieces that are being worked on. Um, The biggest one for me, the one that I always think about is they find a particular quilt piece and the stitching is really nice and neat and pretty up to a point. And then it gets terrible. The stitching gets all crazy, like she's agitated, right? Um, That is the most evocative to me of, you know, what... um, what she must have been thinking because gosh, that's just, it says so much, right? Cause good neat sewing takes a lot of concentration and a lot of skill, which is one reason I've never been good at it. Um, and, but that she would become that agitated, but keep trying to do the stuff that she's supposed to do. She's continuing to try to sew, even though she's in a state of extreme agitation and the women notice this and they immediately realize the significance of the stitching and everything else that they're looking at. And then, you know, then here come the men back in and Mrs. Hale pulls the stitches right out in that moment. She's already making a decision about the, you know, whether she wants to expose this clue to motive or not. Cause they say at the end of the play, the men say, well, all we really need is just some evidence of motive, you know, like, because juries with women, they want to hear if there was a motive. 
And, you know, so there, I mean, that, that's kind of some of the, 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 the physical stuff that they notice. They also talk about other things though, that aren't part of this kind of crime scene, but that are other physical details. They talk about the fact that she used to have beautiful clothes, but, um, and they think that's why she stopped coming around and, and didn't come to the ladies aid because they say, um, Oh, where is it? You don't enjoy things when you feel shabby. Um, that also tells us something about her husband. She used to wear pretty clothes and be lively, they say. And um, and at one point, one of them, I think Mrs. Hale describes her as wearing a white dress and blue hair bows, like really specific memories of things she used to wear. And but now, you know, it's all shabbiness. And um, she asked them to bring her an apron um, to jail, which, again, tells you something about her state of mind that she's in jail. She has no work to do, but she still wants an apron. And uh, one of the women says, I suppose just to make her feel more natural. It's like that, that's how she's trying to feel like herself. Um, I mean, that's that's kind of the stuff I was thinking of in terms of gendered um, kind of knowledge and, and noticing and stuff like that. What about you guys? What did you think of? Um, I, I think you're right about the, the kinds of things that the women notice that the men don't. Um, I also think they make an effort to even think about what kind of person she was in her state of mind. Like they, they think of that as an important thing in a way that the men don't. Um, I, I definitely think that when, um, when the sheriff says nothing here but kitchen things, um, he's talking about the towel and the busted fruit and the bread, but he's kind of talking about them too, right? Like, they, they, are, they are also the trifles in the kitchen um, at a certain level, and, um, but the, the women treat Minnie as more than that. They give her an inner life that is important to be illuminated um, and I, I think we see that um, in the, the kitchen things that you've mentioned, um, Katie, but also in the uh, Minnie's bird, um, which maybe I need to wait a second to, to talk about. Um, Emily, did you have other things to say about uh, gendered knowledge before I talk about Minnie's canary? Yeah, I think, I think specifically with the gendered knowledge, it also, this play does a really good job um, presenting options of like lines of loyalty um i think it is the the investigator i can't remember what he, the lawyer a uh, co county attorney um who says ah loyal to your sex like of course you're gonna side with her um but it is showing this option these options of loyalty that these women have um, because he does say, uh, he also says later, Mrs. Peters, like, well, you are, you are literally married to the law, um, that in implying that, well, this is your highest loyalty. This of course, um, would be like an automatic reaction to you. Like if you had found anything that, that would have helped us, you would have reported it because your husband is the only loyalty that should really ever matter. Um, but the play questions that. Um, I don't know if that's good or bad. I'm newly married, so we'll find out soon. But, um, <laughs> um, but it, it kind of says like, well, should we be loyal to our sex? Should we be loyal to our husbands? Should we be loyal to the laws or the, um, norms and folkways that we have been taught to live by? Um, and kind of what responsibility we have within that loyalty. Um, I think it's funny, Mrs. Hale, like you mentioned, Katie starts ripping out those stitches that are um, not clean and pristine. And um, I have always read that as, um, yeah, that it's kind of the sense of she's protecting her fellow woman. And, and um, I mean, she is, she's literally destroying evidence and that has ramifications, but she gives this reasoning of saying, oh, I just can't stand things that aren't neat and tidy. I just hate it when stitches are out of line. And so she's, she's doing this act of showing loyalty to her fellow woman while giving the lip service of um, kind of an excuse that if it did come back to her, she would say, oh, it's just a habit. I just didn't even think about it. It's just, I just can't stand stitches that are out of line. And so it kind of shows that um, inner turmoil that that those um, extensive stage directions and a lot of that pausing and moving on and um, glances between the two women while the men are present and, and when they're not the conversation that they have, um, how they are, are conflicted, but also 
very much making clear-cut choices that they know the consequences of, or they know that there will be consequences for, um, but they're thinking about it too, which gives them um, a dynamic nature. They're not just these flat women that have truly dissolved into their husbands. They're clearly sentient beings that are are making choices for themselves. And um, regardless of how they feel about Minnie or what she has supposedly done, um, they do view her as a human being at even more so than the men and feel that she um, deserves to have her day in court or deserves to be viewed um, as a whole person as she truly is. Yeah, I think that's why um, when Glasspool converts the play into a short story, um, the the title "A Jury of Her Peers" uh, is so important. You know, of course, it's that's United States legal code, literally. But um, I think it's saying it's making a point about this gendered knowledge, the idea that um, the women who probably weren't serving on a lot of actual legal juries um, in 1916 um, really are her peers in terms of what they know in a way that the men are not. It's interesting, too, to me that um, one of the ways I think Mrs. Hale also seems to be kind of substituting, or not substituting, but she seems to be identifying another crime because she keeps blaming herself for not for not reaching out for not coming over more and she says right near the end um mrs peters says the law has got to punish crime and mrs hale says i wish you'd see minnie foster when she wore a white dress with blue ribbons and stood up there in the choir and sang oh i wish i'd come over here once in a while that was a crime that was a crime who's gonna punish that so she's you know she's finding herself guilty of you know what she says is a crime too of of being disconnected being um you know it's clear from the way these women talk that they knew exactly what this woman's life was like to for to to a certain degree but never took the trouble to find out anymore right and i think that's really powerful um that you know mrs hale is not she's taking some of the blame on herself and i think that's another reason that that she makes the decision that she makes in the end um, is because she feels she seems to feel that she's partially responsible for this situation. And so she's going to, you know, she's going to act differently. Um, it's interesting, too, that you can really see that they that how they think about these women and the fact that they don't consider them threatening at all. They feel no qualms about leaving them alone in the room with the evidence. Um, at the end, they've gathered up some things to take to her at the jail. And uh, the sheriff says, do you want to see what Mrs. Peters is going to take in? And the, the county attorney says, oh, I guess they're not very dangerous things the ladies have picked out. Mrs. Peters doesn't need supervising. And that's when he says that, you know, um, the sheriff's wife is married to the law. Like, he's not even, you know, thinking of them as in any way. It, it's never even occurred to him that they might have feelings about this evidence, that they might do anything um, or have any, any, you know, independent notion of, of how things should go with regard to Minnie Foster, how she should be treated. It's very interesting. Yeah, he just he just assumes that these are just women's things, just kitchen things, and he has no idea that what they're actually taking to her is, of course, the answer to the whole case, um, which he and the other men have been ridiculing the whole time, the, the sewing. Did she quilt it or did she knot it? And they're sort of, uh, I, I believe Glasspool uses the word facetious um, in, in the stage direction for the, the tone of the men's voices. Um, but I want to backtrack a bit, Katie, and and talk about um, something you said about the fact that the community, and I think um, on a, a level that's very important for us and our show, the church are um, are implicated in the guilt um, over what has happened to to many, um, and and what the community and the church's responsibility are here. So one of the central um, metaphors. Um, of the text is Minnie's dead bird. Um, they find the corpse of a canary wrapped in a box um, in sort of her nicest fabric. And um, the men see the empty bird cage and kind of joke about it, but it's the women who find the bird and the strangled bird. Um, it's important that the, the bird's neck has been wrung um, just as John Wright um, has been strangled. Um, 
the bird has sort of had the song choked out of it. And they talk about Minnie Foster in her blue dress, her white dress and blue ribbons, um, colors of youth and purity and vitality, um, singing in the church choir. And so she has the community of the church, and that's a place where she can share her gifts and be noticed. But eventually, um, Katie read that really great quote about um, not participating in the ladies' aid because she didn't, uh, it's not uh, fun to go places and do things when you feel shabby. Uh, so all those things, those symbols that make her feel like she can contribute and be an individual and be a part of the community and sing, um, they get sort of strangled out of her by her marriage the way that um, it's implied in the text, John strangles the bird. Uh, so she's, one of the women says, it's like she was the bird um, in the cage and, and she couldn't sing anymore. So I, I think that's interesting for us to think about as Christians because um, because we are our brother's keeper, right? Uh, that The Bible tells us that we have a communal responsibility to each other and that it is our job to notice the kinds of things that people don't tell us, to, um, to pay attention to the people around us and keep an eye out for when they might be struggling with things. Um, so in a certain way, though I, I don't think it's good for Mrs. Hale to beat herself up about it, I do think she's right. I do think it's a crime that they get so caught up in their own lives that they... Um, either don't pay attention or don't want to pay attention to the kinds of things that are happening. Um, this this pattern of abuse in the right household, um, the the cutting off of voices and communication, that the strangling of the bird is of a piece with the refusing the party telephone line, right? These are all sort of connected behaviors. Um, so I, I do think there's a, a strong message for us as people and especially as Christian people to listen to there. It's a hard thing, too, because, you know, Mrs. Hale says that she didn't didn't want to come over because it wasn't a cheerful place. And to me, one of the most one of my favorite lines in the play, but it's also one of the saddest lines is pretty close to the beginning. The county attorney is like jibing about the roller towel and he says, I shouldn't say she had the homemaking instinct. And Mrs. Hale says, well, I don't know his right hat either. And, you know, I love that line because it, it makes a really important point, which is that, you know, these women are keeping house, right? That's their job to make the home. But at the same time, Mrs. Hale puts her finger on something important, which is that, you know, it's very difficult to make a happy home if the other half of the pair, you know, is a hard man, right? They keep saying he's a hard man. Like, and, you know, it's just that one line says so much about how, you know, it's the county attorney's blaming her for the squalidness of this house. But, you know, it's there are two people in that situation. And and but you're right. They've all been standing on the outside knowing how things are. Everybody knows he's a hard man. Like, you know, um, and but at the same time, nobody does anything. You know, nobody tries to reach out to her. Um, you know, even though she's especially isolated because they make a couple of different comments about, oh, it must have been quiet here, really quiet out here with no children. There are no children. And they say that, you know, it was like 30 years ago that she was Minnie Foster. So they're, they're a childless couple, you know, maybe unable to have children. Maybe her husband didn't want children. We don't know anything about that. But, you know, in any case, that, she feels like a failure, right? You know, she does. Almost certainly. And, you know, and, and yeah. And so again, increasing even more isol the isolation, the silence, the, you know, and then she, she gets this canary and one of the women says, oh yeah, there wasn't there a guy coming by selling canaries. Like, I didn't know she bought one. Like she's so isolated. Nobody knew that she had gotten this, this pet canary, which pr uh, presumably brought her joy. And, and then that's taken away from her too, you know? And I mean, it's just, it's just so, um, it's so sad. And, I think it maybe also speaks to, to, and I don't know, maybe this is reading too much into it, but I also think you were talking about the church, Victoria. It kind of speaks to a, a certain kind of cultural Christianity in which people are going to church because that's their social outlet and that's what you do is you go to church, but you don't really know that much about anybody around you because you don't really get personal. Like, yeah, I think that that, yeah. I kept thinking kind of, of, I know it's a different bird and I know this is probably bad biblical hermeneutics or whatever. Come at me, theology bros. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I kept thinking of uh, the verse about his eye being on the sparrow. Um, my great-grandmother um, used to sing that hymn to me. And the, the fact that, like, you know, we, we know that God cares for us because he, um, he watches out for the little animals, too, and, and that's a way that we know he loves us. Um, well, that's not true in this case, right? Like, uh, nobody's, nobody's eye was on that canary, it seems. Like, the community doesn't know. He takes away the one thing that gives her sort of joy and connection and song and, you know, all of those things, as we've said, are connected to her Christianity. Like, nobody was watching out for her. It doesn't even really seem like God was super watching out for her. Not that I'm saying that God doesn't watch out for people. Don't write me hate mail, y'all. But I just, I've, there's a deep, a deep despair in this play that I think the church does not fix. Like the, the church in that community fails to, to notice or remedy. Yeah, and it's not even like it's just the women who picked up on this, by the way. At the very end of the, uh, the very beginning of the play, Hale's talking about why he was there, and he says that he came to go um, try to get get him in on a party telephone. This is his second attempt, and Hale said that he talked to him about it once before, and he put him off, and he says folks talk too much anyway, and he wanted peace and quiet. And Hale says, I thought maybe if I went to the house and talked about it before his wife, though I said to Harry that I didn't know is what his wife wanted made much difference to John. Like... It's not just the women even who pick up on this. The men know that he's like this too. But, you know, like you said, nobody says anything. And 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 I think it just goes to show too that, you know, there there are clues, like thinking detectively speaking, whatever, there are clues, you know, there were there were clues all along for years that people could could pick up on if they wanted to, but they didn't respond to. And, you know, it, it makes me, this is, and I promise I'm not going to go too far out on a tangent, but it, I keep thinking about this, this interaction that I had the other day, just thinking about like, you know, you, sometimes you can tell when, you know, something's up with someone and what are you going to do? I was at the playground a couple weeks ago and I'm always meeting moms at the playground, strange moms. And it's a very strange environment because it's not unlike meeting someone on a train or a bus because you meet someone at the playground and nine times out of 10, I never see that woman again, but I'm at the playground. Her kids are playing with my kids and we realize in talking to each other that we both have kids. She has a child with autism and I have, you know, we, we have two kids on the autism spectrum and almost the first thing this woman says to me is she says, Oh, and so, so like, is your husband supportive? Like, is he good with that situation? Whoa. And I thought, and I thought, okay, there's a story there. Like, you know, but and again, probably not a great one. Probably not a good one. And I'm like thinking, what do I say to that? But like, she was a total stranger. And I could tell from what she said to me, something's going on at your house that is not great. Like, but, and so if that, if, you know, if we can sometimes get hints from total strangers, these are people that, you know, were in this community with this woman for decades, like, and they didn't go, they didn't check, even though they knew something was kind of up. And so, you know, I just, I think that that's another great reason to reread this play because it indicts that in us. Every time we read it, it indicts that attitude of, it's not my place. I'm just going to let them do their thing. I, you know, I can't interfere, you know, like that kind of, it, it kind of is like a sting that kind of pushes us to not have that attitude, you know? And like, I'm still thinking, I really wish I'd asked that woman's name. Cause like, I just gonna, I'm just going to have to hope she was at the playground again so that I could continue that conversation. Cause I'd really like to know I've been praying for her since I met her. Cause like, what else can I do anyway? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely something um, you can do. And I think we can all, pray for ourselves that we that God opens our eyes to our surroundings and opens our hearts and pricks our consciences and just makes us aware of those kinds of things. So um, listeners, if uh, any of you would like to talk more about this or tell us about um, issues that you have paid attention to or maybe issues that you had wished you paid more attention to, um, please continue this conversation on our Facebook page or in an email to us at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. Um, we're coming close to an hour here, so I'm going to move us on to uh, our third and final segment of every episode, the passing on segment where we recommend um, texts that we think you should read, watch, listen to, um, or otherwise check out. Emily, since you're our guest, why don't you go first? 
Um, so when I was uh, rereading Trifles, it struck a memory in me of Henrik Ibsen's The Dollhouse. Um, this play also has similar notes of of gendered knowledge and gender um, roles. I know that sounds really big and broad, but um, very much the role of a wife and the role of a husband, um, a little bit different in that it includes um, children. I think they have more than one child in the play. The, the family has more than one child, but um, <clears throat> it has a lot to do with the expectations of men and the expectations of women um, and what women do with knowledge that is their own and what men do with knowledge that is their own um, and has kind of similar plot lines of um, women potentially doing not so great things and how and if they're held accountable for those things. Um, I really enjoyed it. I read it in the same course as this class. It might have actually been right up next to each other. I might have read them back to back, which is why I associate them in my mind. Um, but there are a lot of similarities, um, but a little bit different um, tones or themes come out of the similarities, which is cool. So I think um, if you're going to read Trifles, um, go ahead and read The Doll's House right alongside it um, and kind of compare and contrast as I did. I found that very interesting. Thanks, Emily. That's a, that's a really great, uh, really great play. Katie, what do you have for us? So I have two recommendations uh, tonight very different um, recommendations, but both of which I thought of when I was reading this play. So one is thinking in terms of detective fiction, but also thinking in terms of gender knowledge. Um, my first recommendation tonight is Agatha Christie's The 13 Problems, um, sometimes called The Tuesday Club Murders, depending on when you when the book you read was published. Um, it's a collection of short stories featuring Miss Marple. Um, and Miss Marple's one of my favorites. She's um, the kind of the big detective other than Hercule Poirot that uh, Agatha Christie would write about. But Miss Marple is a seemingly unworldly, um, innocent Victorian lady with um, clouds of white hair. And she dresses like 20 years ago. And she's continually astounding people in her ability to immediately see the solution of every crime, but a lot of that is specialized knowledge. And some of it is feminine knowledge, things to do with sewing or um, things like that. But some of it is just, um, it's also um, from being from a small village. That's what she always says. Well, if you've lived in a small village, you know, you can, you can understand the whole world. It's just on a smaller scale. Um, and so I, I thought about, I think again about Miss Marple every time I read trifles. So that's my first recommendation is the 13 problems published in 1933, uh, sorry, 1932. Um, the second thing that I'm recommending is um, completely unlike that in tone, but it's also very good, and that is Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, um, which is probably one of the probably the most famous true crime novel, at least from the beginning of um, a kind of a pioneering text. Um, it makes me trifles makes me think of In Cold Blood because of the idea that the Glassbell wrote the play after you know witnessing the the kind of trial for a real life crime in cold blood is like that on steroids because capote went um after this quadruple murder um happened he went out to research and start writing about it before they'd even captured the killers um and the book is fascinating i don't um it's been a long time since i've read all the way through but one thing that i think is kind of interesting and i don't know what this says about me but when we read it as as undergrads i think i was the only one in my class who liked it um, everyone else was kind of thought it was too gruesome or they, they weren't, um, they was, they were put off. Um, I found it enormously interesting. And, um, so if you like true crime, if you don't mind reading about a gruesome murder that actually did happen in real life, maybe check out In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. Uh, yeah, that book is great. Um, as is the, uh, biopic that talks about its composition uh capote starring philip seymour hoffman so bonus recommendation for that if you uh if you read and like in cold blood maybe check out that movie as well uh my recommendation um also comes with a violence warning um in reading this play and thinking about uh the midwest and lady detectives um i'm going to recommend Fargo, the television series on Hulu, is also, of course, um, a movie 
of the same name, which also centers on a female detective. Um, but I've actually never seen the movie, uh, despite living in Coen Brothers country myself. Um, I do, however, love the television show. It is really visually beautiful. It understands that the Midwest in winter is uh, beautiful, but also terrifying. There are also some really fantastic detective characters, um, most of them women. So if you like crime stories and uh, aren't super grossed out by gore and violence, um, and if you are perhaps a Coen Brothers fan, check out all three seasons of Fargo on Hulu. Uh, and that's going to wrap us up for tonight. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to drop us a line and say hello, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Alan Peterson is our intern. For Katie Grubbs and Emily Rogers, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss various readings of the Christmas classic Baby It's Cold Outside. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in all things love.